0: everyone and welcome to Crime Valley. I'm your host Amber and today I will be presenting a case from the US state of Illinois. This case is an old one that has been back in the media spotlight since January this year and I'm really excited to be sharing it with you. If there was ever a true example of instant karma, then it occurred on the night of April 4, 1981, on Ogden Avenue in Naperville, Illinois. The events that unfolded that evening were horrific, senseless, and shocking, but the scene that played out in that ground floor apartment would bring an end to a quiet evil that had been winding its way through suburban Chicago for half a decade. The realisation of the significance of that night would not be made apparent for nearly four decades. Years of hindsight would bring closure, shock, many questions and a strange sense of relief for what could have been if a teenage boy hadn't fought for his life so many years ago. But first, we need to go back five years prior to that night and talk about a cold winter's evening in 1976. On Monday the 12th of January 1976, at around 11.45pm, police received a call for help. A high school junior by the name of Pamela Maurer had not returned home. Earlier that evening, 16-year-old Pamela had been at home playing cards with a friend. After a while, the two teenagers decided to walk the one and a half miles to another friend's home. At some point, after having arrived at the friend's house, Pamela decided that she wanted to go to the local McDonald's for a Coke. Pamela left on foot at around 9.45pm. She was alone. I'm not certain if Pamela planned to walk back to her friend's home after buying the soft drink, or if she had intended to walk back to her family home. But regardless, when Pam had not returned as expected, her mother Betty called the police. The night passed by with no word from Pamela. At around 7.25am on the 13th of January, Thomas Patterman, who was the Township Road Commissioner, was driving to work along College Road in Lyle. Thomas spotted a purse on the shoulder of the road, and worried that there may have been a hit and run, he got out of his vehicle to inspect the area. As he approached the guardrail, he saw the body of a young girl lying prone on the ground. That young girl turned out to be Pamela Maurer. The scene certainly looked like a hit and run. Pam's body was lying alongside a guardrail and she was fully clothed. There was something else though. A three foot long, one and a half inch thick piece of rubber automotive hose lay on the ground next to the body. When an autopsy was performed, it showed that Pamela Maurer had been strangled by an unknown instrument. There was bruising evident around her neck and police believed that the rubber hose was the likely murder weapon. They also felt that Pam had been murdered elsewhere. It was confirmed that she had been killed at 10.30 p.m. the night before. That meant that the teenager was killed within an hour of leaving her friend's house not just murdered, but sexually assaulted too. Although media reports at the time consistently reported that Pam had not been sexually assaulted, this was inaccurate. No doubt the inaccuracy was perpetuated by the fact that Pamela was found fully clothed, and also perhaps because of a sensitivity surrounding the age of the victim. Biological evidence was taken from Pam's body, which showed great initiative from law enforcement, considering that it was 1976. A description of the rubber hose was made public and it was described as being a special type with limited distribution. Police were actively seeking its owner and strongly believed that the murder weapon would lead them to Pamela's killer. At the time it was said that authorities were intensely questioning Pam's friends and schoolmates. Pamela was described by an old-school friend as very happy but shy and not the type of person who would willingly get into a car with a stranger by January seventeenth. Police were circulating a composite drawing and description of a man they were seeking for questioning on the night of Pamela Mara's murder. A man in a vehicle had tried to pick up a woman who had rejected his offer of a ride. The man asked her to model for him and the woman had noticed a white bundle in the front seat of his car. This occurred at around 11.45pm, the same time that Betty Maurer was reporting her daughter missing. The man was described as being around 5 foot 9 and 25 years old. The police also had two 17-year-olds that they wanted to question. The teens refused to answer questions and they retained lawyers. A 27-year-old male was also a person of interest and there was talk that all three men would be subpoenaed and brought before a grand jury in February that year. Police had traced Pamela's whereabouts on the night of January the 11th, thinking that she may have stopped somewhere closer than McDonald's to buy her soft drink. Police were quickly able to ascertain that she hadn't. Due in part to the large number of young women murdered and missing in and around DuPage County during the 70s, multiple DuPage County police departments decided to create FIAT. FIAT is an acronym for Felony Investigation Assistance Team and its purpose was to help solve major crimes. The creation of FIAT meant that a department could put a call out for assistance and detectives from agencies involved in the agreement would come together and form a cohesive investigative unit. A formal agreement was signed off on by all of the police chiefs along with the DuPage County Sheriff. Fiat, in its very infancy, was a way of bringing detectives from multiple police departments together to investigate crimes such as murder, sexual assault, robbery and burglary. Until that point, police departments in the county had relied on the good grace of other departments to assist them in major crime investigations. Fiat has since expanded and formed a tactical response team, traffic crash investigators and a canine unit. Years went by with no break in Pamela's case. Then, in 1993, a ray of hope. In mid-93, Pamela's investigation was reopened because police received new information about her death. This information reportedly came from multiple sources. Another source of optimism was that new technology had enabled law enforcement to solve the 1973 murder and sexual assault of Roberta Jean Anderson in DuPage County. It is a convoluted story, but the basics are that in 1992, a man by the name of Major Morris was living in Missouri with his family. Morris was a former resident of Oswego County and had been on police radar for years. Law enforcement in DuPage County were looking at the cold case murder of a 15-year-old girl named Julianne Hansen, who, in 1972, had been stabbed and sexually assaulted. Investigators from Illinois had gone to see Major Morris in Missouri to request blood and hair samples to match against DNA that they had taken from Julie's murder scene. Instead, the detectives got a confession. Not for Julie's death, but for the murder and sexual assault of Roberta Jean Anderson. Major Morris pled guilty and received a 100 to 200 year sentence. And a few years later, he was convicted of another stabbing and sexual assault murder, that of Margaret Stern in 1978. To this day, Julianne Hansen's murder remains unsolved. In 2001, DNA was extracted from biological evidence taken from Pamela Maurer's body. This profile was entered into CODIS. There were no matches. On the 13th of January 2020, exactly 44 years after Pamela's body had been found behind that guardrail on College Road, DuPage officials held a press conference and announced that they had found Pamela's killer. Using genetic genealogy, the police were able to link the murder of Pamela to Bruce Lindell. DNA had been taken from Pam's body and from that sample, using DNA phenotyping, the investigators were able to build a physical profile of what her murderer may have looked like. This included eye colour, facial features, skin colour and hair colour. The investigators were then able to search the genealogy databases and start building a family tree. By late 2019, law enforcement felt that they had their man. The only problem was that the man in question had died nearly 40 years prior. But on November 6, 2019, Bruce Lindahl's body was exhumed and a DNA sample was obtained from his remains. Investigators had a match. In fact, the odds of the biological DNA profile taken from Pamela Maurer's body belonging to somebody other than Bruce Lindahl, was one in 1.8 quadrillion. And if this wasn't proof enough, the sketch that had been generated as a result of the phenotyping was an incredible likeness to a high school yearbook picture of Bruce Lindahl. It was the first case in Illinois where genetic genealogy had been used in a criminal investigation. The big questions that people now wanted answered were, who was Bruce Lindahl? How many other women had he harmed and how had he managed to fly under the radar for so long? Not a lot is known about Bruce Lindahl, at least not publicly. It has been said that the police in the area viewed Lindahl as a loser. He apparently had many run-ins with law enforcement but maintained no felony convictions. Bruce Lindahl had moved around quite a bit in his 20s. He stuck to the same area, but moved in and out of suburbs such as Downers Grove, Lyle, Aurora and Woodridge. These were all areas where women were being abducted and murdered. Lindahl had taught small engine repair for a time at Mid Valley Vocational Centre in Caneville, but it seemed that his employers took exception to newspaper reports of Lindell's criminal activity. Shortly before his death, he took a leave of absence and resigned a month later. Bruce was described by some as a smooth talker who could be very persuasive. One man who probably knew Bruce Lindell better than most was a police officer by the name of Dave Torres. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Dave Torres gave an account of his friendship with Lyndall. Dave and Bruce had been what you would describe as good friends at one point. Dave was five or six years older than Bruce, and they had met through a local skydiving club. The two would regularly go out for meals, play racquetball, attend late-night parties, and go on double dates. Dave Torres said that Lyndall was a nice guy with a short fuse, and if you watched him go off, you knew, boom, He's going. Torres went on to say that he had told Lindell, Hey, you can mess with anyone you want to, but the last person you'll mess with is me. You leave me alone. It is not surprising then to learn that Dave Torres noticed a negative impact from his decision to be friends with Bruce Lindell. Police colleagues were wary, and allegedly they didn't keep their disgust hidden. Dave felt that because of his association with Bruce, he was unable to advance in his career. It is not known what major crimes Bruce Lindahl committed between the night he sexually assaulted and murdered Pam Maurer in January 1976 and March 1979 when his name would once again be linked to an attack on a woman. But it doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to believe that in those three-plus years there would have been more victims. In an undated incident which was recorded by police, Bruce Lindahl was pulled over by a policeman in a traffic stop. When the police officer looked inside Lindahl's vehicle, he saw an unconscious woman bleeding from a deep gash to the head. When the officer questioned him, Lindahl stated that he was taking the injured woman to a hospital. The problem with that was that Lindahl was actually driving away from the hospital. No doubt realising how suspicious the situation was, the policeman ordered an ambulance for the injured lady. Once at the hospital, it was found that she had been sexually assaulted. When questioned by police, the victim had no recollection of events, bar the fact that Lindell had given her a drink of something. She remembered taking a sip and nothing after that. No charges were ever laid. Years later, police believed that the woman in that car that night had had an extremely lucky escape. The general consensus was that the woman was most certainly heading to her death that night, and at the time of the traffic stop, she was being driven to a remote area to be murdered and disposed of. Annette Lazar can't listen to the moody blues without being pulled back to the spring of 1979. One day in particular would forever haunt her, And that day was March the 6th, 1979. 20-year-old Annette Lazar was walking to a friend's house. At some point, a car with a male driver stopped and the man spoke to Annette. He didn't seem threatening and in fact, he appeared very normal. When the man offered to sell Annette some marijuana, Annette felt comfortable enough to follow him home. Once they had arrived at the man's house, he took Annette downstairs to the basement where he showed her his pet falcon. When people experience a traumatic event, even years later, a visual, a smell, a taste, a sound, they can all transport you back to that traumatic time. For Annette Lazar, it's a sound. Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues was playing when the man's demeanour started to change. He started making sexual advances towards Annette and was rebuffed. But things took a turn for the worse, and the man grabbed Annette around the throat and produced a 9mm gun, which he held to her temple. Annette was forced into a bedroom where the man proceeded to tear off her clothes. With a gun pressed to her head, Annette asked that the attacker remove the clip, and he did. After the sexual assault was over, Annette's focus became leaving that house alive. She started to compliment the man, telling him how handsome he was and that he was exactly her type. Annette even offered to be his girlfriend and wrote her name and number on a piece of paper as a way to prove her sincerity, anything to get away from her attacker. The man fell for Annette's false flattery and allowed her to leave. Annette went straight to the hospital to have a rape kit performed and then went to file a report with the police. When police confronted Annette's attacker, they found that it was 27-year-old Bruce Lindahl. He denied attacking Annette and told police that he and Annette were in some type of intimate relationship. He played off Annette's story as a lover's tiff. Lindahl even produced proof that he and Annette actually knew one another. It was the handwritten note that Annette had written her name and number on. The piece of paper that had helped to buy her freedom from a predator. Lindahl was never charged. Aurora Police recently released a statement that said that their records showed an officer had taken a report of rape from Annette Lazar on March 6, 1979. They said that the case was investigated and then given to the Kane County State's Attorney on March 26, 1979. Records indicated that the prosecutor reviewed the report and investigation and decided that, under the circumstances, he would not issue any complaints at this time. The case was then cleared due to a lack of prosecution. Annette Lazar would keep the secret of her attack from family and friends for many years to come. Sadly, she felt that there was shame attached to her naivety in trusting a stranger all of those years ago. This was exacerbated by the fact that she felt like law enforcement had not believed her story. On the 23rd of June 1979, less than four months after the attack on Annette Lazar, Bruce Lindahl struck again. It was a Saturday in the summertime, and Northgate Shopping Centre in Aurora was no doubt a busy place. 25-year-old Deborah Colliander had just arrived at the shopping centre and was performing the task of locking up her pushbike when she was approached by Bruce Lindell. He explained that he was having car trouble and asked her for assistance. Deborah must have felt uncomfortable at the request because at first she declined, but Lindell could be quite persuasive and that is how Deborah ended up sitting in the front seat of his car. He was going to play around with whatever needed fixing under the hood, and Deborah's job was to push the accelerator whenever he needed her to. However, once Deborah was situated in the car, Bruce produced a knife and forced her to come back to his house with him. Deborah was then taken inside Bruce Lindahl's home, where she was sexually assaulted. The horror did not stop there. Bruce produced a camera and took pictures of a naked Deborah. At some point, Lindahl fell asleep. Deborah, who must have been fearing for her life, managed to escape the house and run naked down the street. Five doors down from Lindahl's home, a neighbour and her daughters were outside getting ready to get in their car. Deborah ran to them for help and they took her inside their home. The police were called and while they waited, the lady gave some clothes to Deborah and wrote down everything that Deborah had told her about the attack. One of the things that had stood out to Deborah were Lindahl's eyes. They were a noticeable feature and a brilliant blue. She mentioned this to the lady and her daughters and straight away they knew that it was Bruce Lindahl who had attacked Deborah. When police officer Dave Torres heard on the police scanner that a girl had been attacked at his old residence, he drove straight to his former home. Torres said that he was the first one there and that he entered the home without knocking and told Bruce that he needed to head to the police station. At the time, Lindahl was naked, apparently moving from one bedroom to the next, putting clothes on. When police looked around Lindahl's home, they found a handgun and a tripod with the camera still attached. Police also recovered the nude photos of Deborah. Lindahl was arrested, but was soon released on bail. I wanted to mention that the house that Bruce Lindahl was living in at the time was sold to him by his friend Dave Torres in about 1979. The next chronological piece of information that I found on Lindell was in the Chicago Tribune dated the 10th of September 1979. There was an ad in the personal section placed by an attorney by the name of John A. Myers Jr. It said, Anyone knowing the whereabouts of Bruce E. Lindell, formerly of Downers Grove and Lyle, please notify John A. Myers Jr. attorney, followed by a contact phone number. It is unknown why the lawyer was trying to track Lindahl down. On October the 7th, 1980, Deborah Colliander disappeared. It was two weeks before she was meant to be testifying against Lindahl at trial. Deborah was last seen by a security guard who escorted her to her car after her shift at Copley Hospital in Aurora. The state sought continuances for the trial, but they couldn't delay the proceedings indefinitely. And, due in part to the Speedy Trial Act, which at the time stated that defendants should be tried within 70 days of being indicted, the case was ultimately dismissed on March 30, 1981. On December 22, 1980, a 30-year-old woman went to the police, telling them that she'd been attacked by a man outside a restaurant after she had refused his advances. The woman was able to identify Lindahl as her attacker from a photograph. Then, on January 28, 1981, Lindahl was charged with aggravated assault on a police officer, resisting arrest and not having a firearm owner's identification card. It was alleged that Kane County Sheriff's deputies were attempting to serve Bruce Lindahl with an arrest warrant for illegally recording a telephone conversation when he pointed a shotgun at them. On the 5th of April 1981, just before 2am, police were called out to an apartment on Ogden Avenue in Naperville. The girl that lived in the apartment had arrived home to a horrific scene two men lay dead in her living room directly in front of a glass sliding door. The men were positioned virtually one on top of the other. There were obvious signs of a struggle and there was blood everywhere. A six inch kitchen knife lay next to the bodies and at first the police didn't know what to make of the scene. It appeared that two men had been viciously murdered by an unknown assailant. The first question law enforcement needed to answer was was who were these two men and what were they doing in this poor woman's apartment? Well, the first man turned out to be 18-year-old Charles Huber, a senior at Wabonsi High and a resident of Naperville. And the second man? Well, that turned out to be 29-year-old Bruce Lindell from Aurora. Bruce Lindahl was the boyfriend of the woman who had discovered the dead men in her apartment. Autopsies were performed and the results were shocking. Charles Huber had been brutally stabbed 28 times. Bruce Lindahl's body had a single stab wound to his leg. Police were now able to understand the perplexing crime scene. Bruce Lindahl, in some kind of fit of rage, had stabbed Charles Huber. Charles had fought back and in doing so, caused Lindahl to inadvertently stab himself in the thigh where he severed his own femoral artery. Nobody was ever able to come up with a motive for the murder of Charles Huber. What is known is that Charles and Bruce were seen at the Gala Lanes bowling alley in Naperville earlier that evening. Why the two men went back to Bruce Lindahl's girlfriend's apartment is also unclear. Newspaper reports at the time suggested that there was no link between Lindahl and the disappearance of Deb Colliander. That idea would be put into doubt when a friend of Lindahl's came forward with a tip. The man was from out of state and had stayed with Lindahl sometime between Lindahl's attack on Deborah Colliander in June 79 and her disappearance in October 1980. The friend told police that Lindahl had asked him to make Deborah Colliander disappear and in exchange he would be paid in cash, drugs and alcohol. Bruce Lindahl explained that with Deborah out of the picture, there would no longer be a case against him. Lindahl's friend declined the offer. Deborah Colliander's body was found by a farmer On the 28th of April 1982, in Oswego Township. Oswego is about a 12 minute drive from Aurora and the place that Deborah was last seen. Deborah had been buried in a shallow grave, and an autopsy was unable to find the cause of death. Her death was ruled a homicide. After his death, the new owners of Bruce Lindahl's home were unaware of the criminal goings on of the former resident. The couple said that they found nude pictures of women underneath floorboards and within wall cavities. Not realising the significance of the pictures, the new owners threw them out. Presumably in the investigation surrounding Charles Huber's murder, law enforcement had also recovered photos, many of them nude, of multiple women in the home of Bruce Lindell. Some of the pictures found were of a high school girl who had disappeared without a trace in 1979. Deborah McCall was a 16-year-old girl who was a student at Downers Grove High School, the same school that Pamela Maurer had attended. On the 5th of November 1979, Deborah was seen leaving Downers Grove High School, and after that, she was never seen or heard from again. Deborah's body has never been found. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned a girl named Julianne Hansen who was brutally murdered and sexually assaulted in 1972. Bruce Lindahl has been ruled out as a suspect in that crime. It is highly probable that Bruce Lindahl victimised many more girls and women than is currently known by law enforcement. Some police investigators believe that Bruce Lindahl may be responsible for up to 12 murders and 9 sexual assaults. Anyone with information about Bruce Lindahl or any possible victims is asked to contact the DuPage County State's Attorney's Office tip line at 630 407 8107 or the Lyle Police Department at 630 271 4252. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you did I would be so grateful if you could leave a review on whatever streaming platform you are listening on. Thank you for coming to Crime Valley. Have a wonderful day and I will be back this time next week with a brand new episode.